Gresham College presents The Attempt to Construct a Socialist Commonwealth by Professor Vernon Bogdanor, CBE, FBA, Emeritus Gresham Professor of Law. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, this lecture is on the uh, post-war settlement uh, put forward by the Attlee government, and I began to talk about that in the last lecture and discussed in particular the welfare state um, which was instituted by the Attlee government completing reforms of earlier governments, the Liberals before the First World War and then the wartime coalition. And I now want to discuss the other elements of the settlement. <coughs> the second element was a belief in planning and that was a great contrast with the end of the First World War <coughs> when um, uh, planning and nationalisation had rapidly been succeeded by decontrol. And the Labour Party, in its 1945 manifesto, called Let Us Face the Future, said that Labour would plan from the ground up. Um, and uh, Herbert Morrison, who was leader of the House of Commons, said in 1946 that planning, as it is now taking shape in this country under our eyes, is something new and constructively revolutionary which will be regarded in times to come as a contribution to civilization as vital and distinctively British as parliamentary democracy and the rule of law. <coughs> but what did planning mean? Um, during the war, of course, uh, goods had been allocated by a policy of rationing. And that was what some people in the Labour Party believed in by planning. And one economic advisor uh, wrote in his diary, I fear that Sir Stafford Cripps, who was president of the Board of Trade and then Chancellor in the Labour government, I fear that Cripps wants a detailed economic plan in the sense of a statement of exactly how many shirts, how many pairs of boots and shoes, etc., we should produce over each of the next five years. This, I believe, if taken seriously, would lead to the sacrifice of all the flexibility which a proper use of the pricing and cost system demands. And uh, all that, obviously, would mean an end to the idea of consumer sovereignty and might even involve direction of labour, which would be unacceptable to the trade unions. So um, the Labour Party moved away from the idea of retaining rationing as a permanent system, which really quite unrealistic, I think, and they said that they would keep controls primarily to deal with shortages, particularly shortages of food, and that the controls would end when the shortages ended. And that meant the Labour government began a process in the late 40s of decontrol, which was uh, accelerated by the Conservatives when they came to office in 1951. And they came broadly to the view that it was better to return to the market. And in 1949, Harold Wilson, as president of the Board of Trade, announced what he called a bonfire of controls, getting rid of uh, many licensing uh, arrangements for the building trade and other controls. Rationing was not finally ended until the early 1950s. But clearly, by planning, Labour didn't mean, or at least came not to mean, simply uh, the continuation of wartime controls and rationing. So what did it mean? Uh, it didn't mean an industrial strategy of the kind that the French would have and Japan had uh, control of uh, industry by the state. Uh, there was really no long-term policy for industry, no investment policy, um, and no real idea, perhaps, what to do with the nationalised industries. And you may say it was difficult to achieve that when the trade unions were so important a part of the Labour Party. And uh, in practice, the Labour government came to be much more concerned with the stabilisation of the economy rather than problems of planning the industrial structure. And Harold Wilson said that the great gap in the Labour Party's policy at that time was it had no real policy for private industry. It was going to nationalise certain industries, and I'll come to that in a moment, but it had no real policy for planning uh, pri the private sector. And you may criticise the government of that time for evading all sorts of difficult questions about Britain's industrial efficiency, which would become important later on. 
and indeed planning, unlike the welfare state, did not last for the whole of the post-war period. It's, indeed, you can say that planning and the use role of the state is the main victim of post-war politics, that it uh, came to a sudden juddering halt in the late 1970s, uh, in 1979, when Margaret Thatcher was elected, and I don't think any party now would use planning as a slogan. But in the immediate post-war period, it was important. Now, as I said, the uh, trade unions played a fundamental part in the Labour Party, and the great trade union leader of the interwar years, uh, Ernest Bevin, uh, was Foreign Secretary, and in practice the second most important person in the government over the whole field, in some ways even more important than the Prime Minister. And uh, Bevin, before becoming Foreign Secretary in the wartime government, he'd been Minister for Labour and National Service. In, from 1940 to 1945. And when he uh, entered the ministry in 1940, he made this comment. They say that Gladstone was at the Treasury from 1860 to 1930. <laughs> I'm going to be Minister of Labour from 1940 to 1990. And what he meant by that was that the, the Labour movement, um, organised Labour, should be regarded as an equal partner with employers and other groups in discussions with government. That decisions about the trade union and about working people should not be taken, as he believed they'd been taken in the 20s and 30s, without discussion and indeed the consent of the labour movement. And Bevin believed the decisions which had led to the general strike, in which he played a prominent part, had occurred because labour wasn't treated as an estate of the realm of particular importance. And after the general strike, Bevin came to the view that it was no good trying to resist the capitalist state, but it was better to try and get an established and recognised position of partnership with it. So the trade unions, you can see this process in the 20s and 30s, were gradually uh, accommodating themselves to the capitalist state rather than resisting it. Uh, and um, the process was um, symbolised in the 1930s when the Secretary of the Trade Union Movement, Walter Citrine, uh, accepted a knighthood from the national government. They were partners in the state and recognised by the state. And that sense was increased, um, strengthened with the rise of the dictators in the 1930s, when e even the most left-wing trade union leaders came to accept that the capitalist state was worth defending against external enemies. And the trade unions, indeed, were in the lead in pressing for greater rearmament to defend the country. And one of the reasons that Neville Chamberlain failed in 1940, failed to continue in government, was that he couldn't get the support of the Labour Party or the trade unions. And so the trade unions became very fundamental, obviously, with a Labour government. And during the period of the Labour government, from 1948 to 1950, you got the first and perhaps only really successful voluntary incomes policy, whereby the trade unions agreed not to use their bargaining power to the full, but to accept wage restraint, because they said the other policies of the Labour government were leading to social justice, and it was a fair society, and in that fair society the unions ought to make their contribution. Now that broke down that wages policy with the Korean War which led to inflation but it might have broken down anyway. Now um, uh, Bevin said I want to be Minister of Labour till 1990 well he was Minister of Labour till the winter of discontent of 1978-9 because uh, Bevin's policies that the TUC and the trade union should be consulted on all major issues of policy was accepted by not only by Labour governments by Conservative governments, the governments of Churchill and Macmillan, as much as the government at Attlee, so that the TUC, the trade unions, did become an estate of the realm. But you may say they took it too far, and it broke down in the winter of discontent, and Margaret Thatcher was the first Prime Minister to adopt policies the trade unions didn't like without consulting with them, and uh, that ended, as it were, Bevin's period in the Minister, Ministry of Labour. And the whole idea of collective solidarity gradually broke down after the war. Perhaps it couldn't be preserved. Perhaps it was something special in, in wartime, not easily to be reproduced in the peacetime era. And when later governments came to um, try and impose incomes policies, they didn't, couldn't do so with the ease of the Attlee government's first incomes policy. Uh, the need to impose an incomes policy, of course, was a consequence of full employment, 
because it increased the trade union bargaining power enormously if governments, so it was thought till Margaret Thatcher came to power, governments couldn't run the economy so as to increase unemployment. It was thought that would uh, lead to defeat, electoral defeat, uh, because of people's memories of the 1930s. They thought with new Keynesian techniques you could avoid unemployment. But that meant that one of the uh, constraints, if you like, on union power had disappeared. So you had to find a substitute and until Margaret Thatcher, that substitute was seen in some form of incomes policy. And the argument was, which, which Bevin accepted, I think, that in return for the unions being given such an important role in government, they ought to cooperate with the government and restrain their use of bargaining power in the general interest. Now, that had one flaw, which was pointed out by one trade unionist as early as 1950, very prescient, and a key to what happened, I think, in the winter of discontent. <coughs> He said, we were not meant to be public servants to guard the interests of the nation. We were appointed to protect our members and to further their interests within the framework of the law. Does anyone ask the employer to have the national interest in mind instead of the interest of his firm? It's all right having the national interest in mind, but we are not the right people to have it. And this is a great problem for a party of the left, and uh, the Labour Party is often seen as a radical party, party of the left, but insofar as uh, the powerful trade union element in it, can you not see it in an alternative way as a rather defensive and conservative movement with a vested interest in preserving the practices, traditional practices, if you like, of the trade unions, which Margaret Thatcher was later to undermine, radicalise, whatever you called it, because those practices were seen not to be compatible with industrial efficiency. But until Margaret Thatcher, and this was a continuation of policies, I think, from the, before the First World War, and even the much-criticised national governments of the 20s and 30s that followed it, the emphasis was always on conciliating Labour, trying to bring them into the system, uh, trying to weaken their, um, the power of class conflict and class war, if you like, but you may say, and I think Margaret Thatcher would have said this, that we paid too high a price for being so successful in containing social conflict. She would say these were policies of appeasement and that we paid a high price in the loss of industrial efficiency in uh, trying to do that. But at any rate, it's fair to say in the Attlee government this conflict wasn't there and the Attlee government was remarkably successful both in increasing um, economic growth, industrial efficiency, as I'll say later, and in establishing a very good relationship with the trade union movement. So um, those are two further elements of the post-war settlement in addition to the welfare state, the planning element and the uh, relationship with the trade unions as an estate of the realm. And I now come to what you may think of as the main element of the settlement, which no government has dared to touch in fundamentals since it was set up, Name of the National Health Service, uh, passed into legislation in 1946 and came into effect in 1948. Now that was prefigured, it's fair to say, by the coalition government, which issued a white paper calling for a National Health Service in 1944. And it's fair to say that a National Health Service was common ground between the parties. But the uh, coalition government's proposal was... Um, uh, for uh, a much less comprehensive one than the uh, one put forward by Anirin Bevan, because the coalition was arguing for a national health service under local authorities. There was already in existence a rather haphazard patchwork before the war of municipal hospitals run by some local authorities but not others, and also voluntary hospitals which were fee-paying and there was a bit of a dog's breakfast. It was a bit of a dog's breakfast, really. And the, um, when you went into one of the voluntary hospitals, you were asked if you could contribute. Uh, of course, some people couldn't contribute. There's a um, rather unfortunate anecdote of one lady who came in expecting a baby and was asked if she could contribute. And she said, unfortunately, couldn't because she needed all her resources to pay for the baby. But the baby was still born, and then she was said, well, you don't, won't need that money now, can you give it to the hospital. Um, and um, the uh, Labour Party was proposing a much more comprehensive national system. But the, ma the main hostility to it came not from, you may be surprised, not so much from the Conservatives, 
as from the British Medical Association, from the doctors. I mean, the doctors are now resisting reform of the health service. Uh, they've resisted every change in the health service <laughs> since it was set up, but they also resisted the health service itself. And uh, the uh, BMA House, in 1945, they cheered the defeat of Beveridge uh, for his seat in Berwick-on-Tweed, and the former secretary of the BMA, Dr Alfred Cox, when he saw Anirin Bevan's bill, said, I have examined the bill, and it looks to me uncommonly like the first step, and a big one, towards national socialism as practised in Germany. The medical service there was early put under the dictatorship of a medical Führer. This bill will establish the Minister of Health in that capacity. It's fair to say some people in America think Obama's health care system is communism, so there's some uh, analogy there. And it's also fair to say at that time the BMA represented primarily the better-off doctors who gained considerably from the system before the health service from contributions from patients. Now, the key elements of the uh, Bevan system, which still remain, are firstly that it was universal, would apply to every person in the country. Uh, you could opt out of it, but you didn't need to opt in. Everyone would automatically be a member of it if, if they wished. Secondly, it was free at source. Thirdly, and this was the most important thing that Anurin Bevan did, it nationalised the hospitals. The hospitals weren't to be run anymore by local authorities or voluntary bodies, but nationalised uh, and run from the centre. Because Bevan argued that other, the, the local authorities were too small and the rates were insufficient to sustain a service, and there'd be too much inequality between rich and poor areas. And what Bevan wanted was a national service uh, available to people in poor areas as well as in rich without, dis without discrimination. And Bevan said, uh, some degree of hyperbole perhaps, this is the biggest social experiment in the social services that the world has ever seen undertaken. And it was the first health system in the world to offer free care to the whole population and the first comprehensive system to be based not on the insurance principle, as of course the old Lloyd George system was, but on a national provision of services available to all. And Bevan saw this as a first step towards building a socialist society because he said this is to be funded by the taxpayer and by no other source and he also, incidentally, favoured not the beverage system, but a non-contributory welfare system, because he asked why should the poor contribute to welfare payments, and that this showed the superiority of collective action over individual action. Now, this led to a problem, because when the health service was set up, Attlee, the Prime Minister, made a conciliatory speech saying that the health service owed something to those in all political parties. And Nye Bevan then made a speech which uh, got him into trouble and probably cost the Labour Party votes, in which he reminded people that he'd had to go down the mines at the age of 12 and that this had been a result of the Tory mine owners. And he said he had great contempt for them and that to him they would always be lower than vermin, famous phrase. And he said that Toryism was organised spivery. Well, this wasn't the uh, consensual attitude in which Attlee hoped the health service uh, to begin. Now, Bevan saw himself in the cabinet as the main representative of democratic socialism. And indeed, he was one of just two cabinet ministers in the government who had not been in the co wartime coalition, so he'd not been part of the consensus, the wartime consensus. Now, uh, Nigel Lawson, later Tory Chancellor of the Exchequer, said that the National Health Service was the nearest that Britain had to a religion, that they'd lost belief in God or other uh, principles, but the National Health was religion believed in without any evidence and faith. But it created problems from the beginning because uh, if it was free at source, demand for it, in theory, would be unlimited because if any good is free we want perhaps as much of it as we can. The health is an unlimited good, if you like. But of course the funding for it was limited. And uh, certainly other ministers, for example the education minister, transport ministers and others, they were competing with health for their budgets. Now, 
they would ask themselves, why should the health budget be unlimited when our budgets are being limited? Uh, and, of course, the Treasury had to decide, amidst very limited funds and money, how much the health service should get compared with other uh, services. Now, uh, Bevan said, as a democratic socialist, you can't do that, and that uh, the health service should depend on the demand for health, which is an unlimited good. And if you had to spend more for it, that was just the price you needed to pay to cure people of their illnesses, and you shouldn't have any pettifogging treasury interference with it. And that was going to lead to the crisis which blew up the Labour government in 1951 and kept it divided uh, for 13 years when Bevan had an argument with the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Hugh Gateskill, over a seemingly trivial issue whether charges should be imposed for false teeth and spectacles. And that, I say, a seemingly trivial issue, but as I shall try and show in a few minutes, it, it blew up the Labour government. But that, at any rate, is the next element of the um, post-war settlement, and broadly it has survived. It's still a universal service. The core is still free. They're obviously, you pay for prescription charges and appliances and, and so on, but the core of it is free. You do not pay to visit the doctor. You do not pay to stay in hospital uh, uh, and so on, and it is universal. And I think it's fair to say that no government of any colour has dared publicly to suggest that any of these features be altered, and uh, they think that they would lose votes by it, whatever Nigel Lawson said. Now, the next element of the settlement, which hasn't lasted, was nationalisation. And that was the nationalisation of the various public utilities. Uh, the Bank of England was the first in 1946, later denationalised by another Labour government, uh, the Blair government in its first days in 1997. The mines nationalised in 1947, together with electricity, gas and the railways, and then briefly iron and steel in 1951. Now, uh, we now see nationalisation as a part of an ideological choice, and it's certainly true that some people in the Labour government did see it that way, but most, I think, didn't, and most in the country didn't, because none of these industries or, or um, organisations were under undiluted private control. All were either were, were subject to some measure of public control. Even the iron and steel industry was run in the 30s by a cartel, and all of them were the subject of an inquiry or official report during the war. Uh, most of them recognised that they should be nationalised, often by chairmen who were conservatives. Uh, and substantial parts of many of them were already, already owned, some of them by local authorities. For example, a lot of transport was run by local authorities. Uh, many gas undertakings were run by local authorities. So it didn't seem the huge ideological shift, if you like, that it may seem to us today. In the gas industry, over a third of them were, were already controlled by local authorities. Electricity was 60% publicly owned. Uh, a quarter of bus and coach services were under local authorities. So there weren't really examples of unadulterated, pure enterprise. So the issue to most people didn't seem one of public versus private ownership, but one of public ownership versus public control. And when the Conservatives denationalised iron and steel in the 50s, they didn't privatise it as Margaret Thatcher privatised. They established it under a public cartel so that there wasn't, there was, it wasn't fully denationalised and there was still control and planning over the industry. So it was seen as a practical answer at that time which convinced many people who were not uh, themselves socialists. But uh, in all this, there's a very important and crucial change occurring in the Labour Party because the original idea or programme of the Labour Party had been that nationalisation was somehow an end in itself, a part of achieving the socialist goal of a society based on fellowship. But now it was becoming a means to an end to be justified by whether it increased or decreased the efficiency of business or industry. And you may say it's a, it's a practical, pragmatic question. If you find it doesn't, there's no argument for nationalisation. A very different sort of position from the original socialist position. The movement, if you like, from uh, socialism to social democracy. And um, 
Labour was gradually moving away from a commitment to wholesale nationalisation. In 1949, it issued a policy statement called Labour Believes in Britain, and it said nationalisation was appropriate where private enterprise was, and I quote, failing the nation. But this meant that where private enterprise was successful, you didn't need nationalisation. And in 1950 and 51, there were very few new candidates for nationalisation. Nationalisation was no longer really at the centre of Labour policy in a way which it was in 1945. So that is the final element of the settlement which I want to mention, and uh, it hasn't, of course, lasted. And uh, the mixed economy, so-called, lasted till Margaret Thatcher, and then she privatised everything. And um, when in 1997 Tony Blair came to power, the question wasn't what Labour would nationalise, but what it would privatise. And the Labour Party actually went further in privatisation after 1997 than Margaret Thatcher. So nationalisation, that part of the settlement is dead. Now, uh, I want to sum up the achievements of this government before coming on to its demise. And its achievements were very considerable indeed. Between 1945 and 50, Britain increased her exports by 200% and uh, brought the balance of payments into balance before the Korean War, which then worsened it. But no one thought in 1945 that could be achieved so rapidly. Second, and by contrast with the end of the First World War, full employment was preserved. Um, a great contrast with uh, the uh, interwar years. Uh, unemployment was under 1% for the whole period of the Labour government. Uh, you look at the depressed areas, in the northeast, in 1938, unemployment had been 38%. In 1951, it was 1%. And by 1988, it was 13% again. It was going up and is, of course, higher now. Output between 1945 and 51 increased by a third, Real gross domestic product rose by 3% per annum from 1947 to 1951, and that's the highest four-year rise in GDP in the 20th century. Wage rates rose on average 6% a year, compared with prices 4 or 5% a year, so it was a small increase in standard of living each year. Um, uh, but it was smaller than it need have been, because so much of the increase in output was steered into investments and exports which the country needed. And therefore it was not apparent to the ordinary consumer who took the view that uh, there was too much rationing and austerity. And you often read accounts of that period which says it was very grey, you couldn't buy any consumer goods and so on. Well, there are two things to be said about that. The first is that the increase was uh, shifted, as I say, into investments and exports. But the second is that most of these accounts come from comfortable people of the middle classes uh, who couldn't buy the consumer goods that they wanted and could afford. But for poorer people, it wasn't such a, a difficult time because, um, uh, price, because of rationing, prices were held down and so they were able to buy the essentials of life more easily than they could have done before. So you've got to be careful from which side you look at it. It's fair to say it was the middle classes that were the key uh, um, marginal voters under our electoral system and that was where Labour lost seats in 1950 and 51. That it had gained enormously in 1945, particularly in the suburban areas of London and Birmingham and those were the areas which swung heavily against Labour in 1950 and 51. But the working class vote uh, increased. Labour got a higher vote from the working classes in 1950 and 51 than it had in 1945, which is why it lost the election of 1951, despite getting more votes from the Conservatives, because the Labour Party piled up huge majorities in working classes where they weren't needed, but lost in the key marginal seats. So, um, uh, economically, on the whole, the Labour Party had, in my government, been very successful. And also, you may argue, uh, the greatest social advance this century with the National Insurance Act, the National Assistance Act, and the National Health Service that now um, social welfare based not on charity but on individual rights and maintaining civilised living standards for millions of people. The school leaving age was raised to 15 um, and uh, that too was an achievement, fundamental. Uh, the reduction in particular of insecurity 
and the achievement of one of Labour's fundamental aims as a party, the universal minimum for everyone. Um, uh, the, uh, a social investigator, Seabone Rountree, had studied York at the beginning of the 20th century and through the 20th century to look at poverty. And in 1936, he found that 31% of the working class lived in poverty. By 1950, the figure was down to 3%. And that was not due only to welfare, but to high wages due to trade union bargaining power, and above all, to full employment. And Roundtree found in 1936, unemployment was the cause of poverty in 29% of cases, and low wages in 33% of cases. In 1950, the figures were 0% because you had full employment, and 1% due to low wages. And Roundtree said remaining poverty seemed primarily caused by sickness and old age, and he thought very optimistically the advance of the health service and increases in pensions could deal with that. So it was a very optimistic period. Now, abroad also, the Labour Party uh, had much success to its credit. Uh, it uh, instituted policies of collective security through the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and played a part with America in resisting what it saw as aggression in Korea. And it decolonized, some said much too rapidly, in India, but at least Britain avoided the uh, long, drawn-out and hopeless battles that the French fought in Algeria um, or Bel the Belgians in the Congo. And the Labour Party's policies in India were summed up very well, I think, by the Chancellor Hugh Dalton in 1947. He said this in his diary. If you are in a place where you are not wanted and where you have not got the force to squash those who don't want you, the only thing to do is to come out. This very simple truth will, I think, have to be applied to other places too, e.g. Palestine. I don't believe that one person in a hundred thousand in the country cares tuppence about it so long as British people are not being mauled about. And I think that was a fair estimate. Now, uh, it's not uh, wholly, as you'd expect, a wholly one-sided record of success. There were failures. Uh, the first failure, which damaged the Labour Party very considerably, was a coal crisis in 1947, when at 24 hours' notice, uh, all, coal, all um, electricity rather had to be cut off in the southeast of England for 24 hours. Uh, and the uh, motto was, um, uh, people said, uh, with food shortages, the food minister was Strachey, and the minister for the mines was Shinwell, and the motto came to be, starve with Strachey and shiver with Shinwell. <laughs> that didn't work. Then the Labour Party didn't have a very effective policy to meet the shortage of dollars, um, which had not been seen clearly uh, before 1945, and there were periodic economic crises with dollars leaving the country. Then uh, the Labour Party didn't um, manage to do much about the Palestine problem, but you may say, uh, not particularly to discredit, since no one else has been able to do anything about it either. Then um, uh, some people argued that too much of national output went into exports and capital formation and that it was asking too much of the electorate and they should have increased consumption more. But to that, Attlee would have replied, using a phrase of Margaret Thatcher, that he believed in Victorian values of saving and thrift and so on and not in consumption. And uh, he uh, said a phrase often used then that there was a national effort uh, which all ought to be involved with to get the economy back on its feet. Uh, Attlee was a bad chooser of ministers. He kept elderly dugouts in government much longer than they should have been and should have brought on the young, and he should have promoted, in my opinion, a Nairin Bevan, um, who he thought should be his successor, incidentally. And he had poor judgment about that. Then uh, one of the problems that hit the Labour government and did broke it up was rearmament following the Korean War. And that was where the heavy expenditure occurred, in my opinion, which did the most damage to the prospects of British industrial recovery in the 50s, because it got in the way of the export drive just when Germany and Japan were returning to world markets. They weren't involved in heavy rearmament for obvious reasons. But, um, of course, uh, people in that government had memories of appeasement in the 30s, and they thought it would be very dangerous to appease Stalin in Korea as it had been dangerous to appease Hitler. And so they, had, they thought they had to take part in rearmament. Nevertheless, um, 
and before, go, before going on to the demise of the government, this was a new uh, and very important uh, settlement. And the word consensus is often used, but I prefer the word uh, settlement um, because uh, so, so much of it has, has remained. And one aspect of the settlement not often noticed is the effect it had on the Conservatives, that they could only get to power if they accepted the main elements of it. That if they had um, uh, supported traditional free market policies, if they'd said they didn't believe in the health service or the welfare state, they would never have been returned uh, to uh, government. But as I say, it was a breach with the Labour view, the traditional Labour view, that there were two forms of society, a capitalist society and a socialist society, and that the aim of the Labour Party was to replace one with another, because, the, after all, the obvious conclusion from the Attlee government was that capitalism could, in fact, be reformed. Now, in 1946, one of the younger members of the Labour Party to become a minister in the Wilson and Callaghan governments, Anthony Crossland, wrote an important book called The Future of Socialism, and Crossland argued that Attlee's reforms had so fundamentally transformed the capitalist system that socialism itself had to be revised. And he said that many liberal-minded people have now concluded that Keynes plus modified capitalism plus welfare state works perfectly well. And I think in that statement you can see the roots, so it took a long time to get it formed, of New Labour under Blair, where Clause 4 was abolished, and the Labour Party was no longer centrally concerned with state control. So capitalism was saved, in a sense, by the Labour governments relying on the influence, if you like, of Beveridge and Keynes, neither of whom were Labour, both were liberal. Um, some on the left, and Bevan was one of them, uh, tended to attack Labour governments for saving capitalism. They said they shouldn't have saved it, they should have moved on to socialism. But oddly enough, no one on the right thanked Keynes and Beveridge for saving capitalism, and people on the right, like Margaret Thatcher, tended to attack Keynes. Uh, they didn't thank him for saving it. Uh, so um, the fundamental alternatives which seemed to be there were no longer there, and, and uh, you, you had a much different uh, political battle. It was reflected in the uh, 1950s by the phrase butskalism, because the Chancellor, Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer in the government that succeeded Attlee's was R.A. Butler, and the Labour Chancellor at the end of the Labour government had been Hugh Gateskill, and they said they really, there was a lot of agreement between them, butskillism. Now, one other feature of the settlement I think is worth noticing, it was a highly centralising settlement. There was no, what the Labour Party was thought of as nonsense about devolution or decentralisation or the big society, because the Labour Party then said only a strong central state could ensure equality and fair shares, and um, the, that uh, benefits should be funded by central government, the health service should be central. Bevan, although Welsh, strongly resisted any separate Welsh or Scottish health service. He would have hated devolution. He said, sheep don't change their character when they cross the Welsh border. If you're ill, he said, if you're ill, uh, the treatment you need doesn't depend on whether you're Welsh or Scottish or English, but the sort of treatment you need, how ill you are, depends on need and not on geography. And they would therefore have been very much opposed to uh, devolution. Now, um, the settlement... Uh, was attacked, as I say, very strongly from the left by Bevan, later by Tony Benn and so on, uh, as, a, as a substitute for socialism, but the more fundamental attack came later on from the right, um, uh, and particularly from uh, Margaret Thatcher. Um, now, the main criticism that Margaret Thatcher was to make of it was that it was too concerned with fair distribution than with increasing production. And the real problem in Britain was how to make Britain more efficient. And there was too much guilt in what she saw as a ruling class uh, derived from the 30s, and that we ought to uh, get rid rather radically of outdated industrial methods, trade union management, and so on. And that, in a, a part of that criticism is a bit unfair, because the Labour Party did, as I've 
shown succeed in increasing industrial production, and they took the view that the welfare state and the and the uh, health service, they were valuable in themselves, but they'd also give you a more effective population, more capable of, of production, um, and that uh, you would lose less days in absenteeism and so on and so on. You'd lose a whole of the population effectively. And, um, but it's, it's fair to say they didn't entirely attack the restrictive practices and difficulties that plague British industry. Uh, it was summed up well, I think, by John Maynard Keynes, in a memo to the Cabinet in March 1945, near the end of the war. He said, if by some sad geographical slip, the American Air Force, it is too late now to hope for much from the enemy, he said, if the American Air Force were to destroy every factory in the northeast coast and in Lancashire, at an hour when the directors were sitting there and no one else, we should have nothing to fear. <laughs> he said, how else we are to regain the exuberant inexperience which is necessary it seems for success, I cannot uh, surmise. Now, uh, the problem was that uh, if they couldn't increase industrial efficiency, how were they going to pay for this wonderful welfare state and all the rest of it? And in 1951, Herbert Morrison, who was on the right of the party, said, there was a tendency in education and the other social services for expenditure to rise from year to year without full regard to the taxable capacity of the country to a greater extent than had happened in recent years. What was desirable must be judged in the light of what was practicable from the point of view of long-term finance. And Stafford Cripps, who was on the left, said they were reaching the limit on expenditure which could be raised by taxation and there was a serious danger that obligations might be entered into which the country could not meet in future years. And in 1949, the first little breach came in Nye Bevan's health service because a bill was introduced making it possible to impose prescription charges. They weren't actually imposed by Labour, they were imposed by the Conservative government afterwards. And Bevan accepted it, watering it down, uh, simply he had the authority to do it, he didn't actually do it. And the reason he conceded in part was the Chancellor at that time was Sir Stafford Cripps, who was, uh, as Bevan thought, a socialist and basically on the right side. And he thought the government was still moving towards socialism. Um, uh, and uh, he, uh, Cripps argued the charges on prescriptions would simply be a response to abuse, to what Bevan himself called the ceaseless cascade of medicine which is pouring down British throats. So you could argue it was to protect the health service and not to raise revenue and thereby principle of the free national health service preserved. Now, then things changed because Cripps became very seriously ill and had to resign in the autumn of 1950. And um, he was replaced to Bevan Chagrin by the young Hugh Gateskill who just entered Parliament in 1945. And Bevan wrote a letter of protest to Attlee because he said Gateskill had no roots or experience in the labour movement. And he was a middle-class intellectual from Oxford uh, and uh, really didn't understand the trade union's grave mistake to appoint uh, such a person. And then uh, in the spring of 1951, uh, the Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevin, died and was replaced by Herbert Morrison. And so the two major posts in the government had gone and Anarin Bevan, who had great claim to either of them, from the health service got neither and um, Attlee did not treat him well. Bevan would have been content with the position of colonial secretary, he wanted that but Attlee said he couldn't put him in that position because he was too racially prejudiced and what he meant by that, he was too pro-black and against the settlers, the white settlers in Rhodesia <laughs> and South Africa so he didn't get that chance and he was moved in January 1951 to the post of Minister of Labour it's important to note he wasn't Minister of Health by the time the dispute arose in April 1950. He was in the Ministry of Labour. And that was a particularly sensitive position because with the problems of rearmament in the Korean War, the, uh, you'd have to hold down wages in some way uh, if you were going to be able to finance rearmament. So it was a very sensitive position and perhaps not the position that a lead should have been given to a leading figure in the Labour Party. Now, the new Minister of Health... Uh, was Hilary Marquand, who was outside the cabinet, so health was being downgraded, 
and the position of Bevan opposed to the charges was made difficult because Hillary Marquand agreed to the charges. So uh, Gateskill and the government could say, well, the Minister of Health actually agrees to the charges. Who are you to oppose them? Now, Hugh Gateskill uh, was determined that the anomalous position as he saw it of health, whereby it was only um, a service without a ceiling of expenditure, expenditure was unlimited, that that should stop. And unlike Cripps, he wasn't prepared to tolerate uh, Bevan just saying he wanted as much on the health service as people demanded. So he said there has to be a ceiling. Now, um, on the other side, Bevan was not prepared to accept from Gateskill what he'd been prepared to accept from Cripps because he didn't regard Gateskill as a socialist. He thought he was moving in away from socialism. And uh, Gateskill proposed all sorts of things which fortunately, perhaps for him, did not become public. It's now known from the records that he proposed a charge uh, for hospital stay, for a stay in hospital in 1951. It never it was rejected, but he proposed it. Something not even Margaret Thatcher proposed, I think. And uh, Beveridge, incidentally, was in favour of hospital charges on the grounds that it shouldn't be more profitable for a patient to be in hospital when he could be at home. Uh, rather odd justification. But um, uh, Gateskill produced a ceiling on the health service budget, and he said that ceiling could only be achieved if you had charges for false teeth and spectacles. Now, uh, Bevan said, argued in Cabinet, that the rearmament programme was uh, too large and couldn't possibly be met, that the raw materials would not be forthcoming. And on that he was proved correct, and the Conservative government that succeeded Labour, led by Churchill, scaled down the rearmament programme. Now, Gateskill's position was we had to do what we could in rearmament because we had to keep the Americans on side. There was great fear the Americans would withdraw from Europe if other countries didn't make their contribution. Um, but uh, Bevan said uh, uh, that the programme couldn't be uh, achieved. Now, uh, furthermore, there was something I think even more fundamental than these points, that Bevan was beginning to take the view that the government was going in the wrong direction, that it had no longer any purpose uh, for, it, for existing. That previously, whatever the difficulties and setbacks, it was moving forward towards some form of socialism. Uh, have you define it? And uh, that was confirmed, as I say, by the fact that Cripps was the exchequer and Attlee, whom on the whole he, he respected, were moving towards that principle. Now he thought it was going in the wrong direction, coming under the influence of middle-class economists that couldn't achieve anything more. And uh, Bevan resigned from the government with Harold Wilson, uh, another cabinet minister, um, in uh, May 1951 and really took the view that there was nothing to gain by remaining in office on that basis. But again, an even further point that Bevan uh, took, and it was this. The basis of his belief in a free health service was that people could be trusted to be responsible. And from that point of view, the charges wouldn't be needed because the increases in expenditure were merely temporary. It was a backlog because of bad treatment before the health service existed. And that was true, that a lot of people with serious complaints, particularly women who weren't covered by the Lloyd George insurance scheme, hadn't gone to the doctor because they couldn't afford to do so. So therefore, Bevan said, there's a large backlog which will naturally uh, uh, fall, as it, it is clear. So spending will fall. And on that, too, he was correct. The Conservatives established a committee in the 1950s to look at overspending in the health service. The committee concluded it wasn't overspending, that the health service budget was actually being contained. But this uh, resignation in 1951 was absolutely crucial because it meant the end of the first of the post-war dreams that Britain could move towards a socialist society, perhaps a society like that of Sweden or Norway. That was Bevan's uh, view. And uh, he uh, came to be bewildered in the 1950s when the tide seemed to be turning the other way and socialism uh, seemed to become a lost battle because the solidarity of the working classes, as he saw it, was eroded by affluence and individualism. And in the late 50s, he attacked what he called the affluent society. He said, how our people have achieved material prosperity in excess of their moral stature. 
1959, he said to a colleague, history gave them the chance, the working class, he meant. They didn't take it. Now it is probably too late. It was a path Britain could have taken towards a socialist society. It's interesting, in later years, both, uh, neither Bevan nor Gateskill held office again. Both died prematurely. Bevan in 1960 and Gateskill in 1963. Many years later, Gateskill's widow uh, told a, uh, a journalist who'd been a friend of Bevan that, in fact, Bevan should have been leader. And she said he was a natural leader for a socialist party. Of course, that raises the question of whether Labour was or was still a socialist party. But anyway, it ended that particular uh, dream. Now, the left saw 1945, and in particular the National Health Service, as the beginning of a period of socialist advance. And a Marxist historian, Eric Hobsbawm, was very fond of writing about the forward march of Labour. But in fact, I think in hindsight, you can say the Attlee government was not the beginning, it was the culmination. It was as much an end rather than the beginning. Uh, that in, we moved after a long hesitations, perhaps, in a very different direction. And uh, in particular under Margaret Thatcher, who was the first Prime Minister to grow up in the post-war period and who asked the question, can we really afford these traditional institutions and habits we had and we've inherited from the Attlee government? Uh, perhaps the welfare state was, was all right in the past, but do we still want it in an affluent society? And the settlement broke down with an attack from the uh, right. So uh, that, I think, was uh, very uh, important. Now, uh, the left, as I say, was disappointed by the 50s and what happened afterwards. But I think, in a sense, the Conservatives also came to be disappointed by what happened in post-war Britain, and I now want to explain why that happened. Because the central aim of Conservatives had been to maintain British power in the world. And when, in October 1940, uh, Churchill succeeded Neville Chamberlain as leader of the Conservative Party, he'd become Prime Minister in May, but Chamberlain remained leader of the Conservative Party he had to retire through a terminal illness in October. Churchill asked himself, am I by temperament and conviction able sincerely to identify myself with the main historical conceptions of Toryism? And he answered, you won't be surprised, his answer was yes. But he said, um, he could, he thought, since at all times I have faithfully served two causes which I think stand supreme. And these two causes were the maintenance of the enduring greatness of Britain and her empire and the historical continuity of her island life. So for Churchill, uh, the essence of conservatism was that Britain should remain a great power, what at the end of the war was called the Big Three. And uh, Ernest Bevin, the foreign secretary in the Labour government, though not Attlee, agreed with that view. And it was Ernest Bevin who pressed hardest for Britain to become an atomic power. Not so much because of Russia, but to stand up to America. He said, we could not afford to acquiesce in an American monopoly of this new development. It was a symbol of independence. And uh, the Chancellor and the President of the Board of Trade worried about the cost, but Bevin said, we've got to have this thing over here, whatever it costs. We've got to have a bloody Union Jack flying on top of it. <laughs> and um, Attlee, uh, Attlee rather finagled the decision because the key committee which made the decision excluded the economics ministers who said we couldn't afford it and then decided to have it. The Cabinet and Parliament weren't told, talk about Prime Minister Graham, they weren't told it came out in an answer to a parliamentary question on the defence estimates that one of the, one of the items of expenditure was expenditure on British atomic weapons. When Attlee later in life was asked why he didn't tell his cabinet colleagues, he said some of them weren't fit to be trusted with matters of that sort. <laughs> so we were to become a great power. And Attlee said the most important thing Bevin did was standing up to the Americans. Now secondly, the second thing that Attlee did and Churchill followed and you may think a good thing or a bad thing, there'll be a lot of division of opinion, was to resist American pressure to become part of a supranational Europe. The Americans took the view they couldn't afford to pay endlessly for Europe to defend herself. It was time Europe defended herself on her own, and the, you couldn't do it with squabbling countries, and the squabbling countries wouldn't allow an independent nationalist Germany to rearm, 
So they all had to get together uh, and uh, join together in some federation and uh, that way rearm and form collective security so the American burden would be lightened. And that was not something that Bevin wanted to do or that Churchill uh, wanted to do. And with the Churchill government in 1952, Anthony Eden made an important statement, he was the Foreign Secretary, made an important statement in America, which some of you will agree with. Uh, he warned the Americans against trying to push a country to act against its basic instincts. And he said, you will realise I am talking about repeated suggestions that Britain should join a federation on the continent of Europe. And he then said, this is something we all know in our bones we could never do. And you may think that is a profound comment, or you may think it's backward-looking, but it was the view of the Conservative government. And Eden said to one of his advisers in the Foreign Office, he said, the letters I get from constituents, he represented a constituency in Warwickshire, he said, they're all from people in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you know. He said, they're the people who are closest, that's where their relatives are. And he said, the continent is where, where their ancestors are buried. That's what they think of the continent. They don't want to be involved with Europe. Now, uh, we didn't succeed in becoming uh, the big three. I think one of the big three, I think it's fair to say. And... Did we do badly in the post-war period because we tried to do too much? One of the scientific advisers of the Labour government, Sir Henry Tizard, said in 1949, we persist in regarding ourselves as a great power, capable of everything, and only temporarily handicapped by economic difficulties. He said, we are not a great power, and never will be again. We are a great nation, but if we continue to behave like a great power we shall soon cease to be a great nation. Let us take warning from the fate of great powers of the past and not burst ourselves with pride. See Aesop's fable of the frog. Uh, so um, that, uh, I, I think, was another area. Now, the Conservatives struggled hard to combat that decline of Britain as a great power, but it's fair to say they didn't succeed and the Conservatives played as much of a role as the Labour Party in liquidating the empire and the ending of Britain's role as a very uh, great uh, power. And perhaps Churchill, in a way, instinctively understood that because when in 1946 he visited America, he said to the American president, Harry Truman, if I could be born again, I'd like to have been an American. America is the country of the future. Britain is the country of the past. It used to be said that the sun never sets on the British Empire, but countries rise and fall. America is now the land of opportunity. And at the end of his life, Churchill said he was depressed because he said, I worked hard all my life. I've achieved a lot, but I've achieved nothing because Churchill hoped the strong and secure British Empire would be a guarantor of peace in the world. And Churchill said that statesmen, he said he wouldn't be regarded very highly by history. And his private said, oh, don't be ridiculous, thinking he was after a compliment. Churchill said, no, he said, because statesmen are judged not by their victories, but by what they did with their victories. And then he said, I could have defended the British Empire against anybody except the British people. So he didn't achieve that uh, either. And um, uh, that was a further failure, a further, if you like, a failure of a dream. Now, uh, Churchill came back to power. He succeeded the uh, Labour government in 1951, though during the war he'd said he would retire at the end of the war. He said he wouldn't make Lloyd George's mistake of hanging on. And he said to Anthony Eden, his heir apparent at the end of the war, they were in the cabinet room, he said, 30 years of my life have been passed in this room. I shall never sit in it again. You will, but I shall not. But of course, he did return in 1951, uh, though it seemed that nothing he did could add to the reputation he'd gained in 1945. And um, uh, his uh, peacetime government um, uh, was, very, of course, very different from the uh, wartime uh, coalition. Uh, the first problem that Churchill faced was, frankly, that he was, on the whole, unfit to remain as Prime Minister. Contrary to uh, the public hadn't been told that he'd suffered, beginning in the war, very serious heart attacks and strokes and was a very ill man. The French president, Oriol, 
who visited Britain in December 1951, reported of Churchill that he had found a man whose hearing is poor and who often repeats himself. Uh, in 1954, the French ambassador reported to his government he is still active only in appearance. In May 1953, shortly before he had a very serious stroke, uh, which made people think he wouldn't survive the weekend, but he did, the, an aide to Dr. Adenauer, the German chancellor, wrote this in his diary. Churchill sometimes gives an uninformed, absent-minded impression, and when he wakes from his dreams and poses questions, they are often off the point. The old man sits heavily in his chair. His left eye waters, and if he tries to give a connected opinion, such as on the British desire for peace, he seems, as often with old men, on the edge of tears. It is hardly credible that this man, despite his physical condition, should lead the British Empire. The Chancellor, his Dr Adenauer, sometimes gets a poor impression from his interlocutor's mistakes and makes notes of his concern on a piece of paper which he pushes over to me. But the Permanent Secretary of the Foreign Office uh, comforted uh, Adenauer by saying the Foreign Office did keep a constant eye on the Prime Minister. Uh, so um, Churchill was uh, unfit for uh, office, it's fair to say. But yet there's a paradox. It's arguable the 1951-55 to 55 government was one of the most successful in the post-war period. And you may say this shows the comparative unimportance of the role of a prime minister <laughs> in British government. And I shall talk more. I'm afraid I've fallen further behind. But I shall talk further about the Conservative achievements in 1951-5, including, some of you may think, keeping us out of Europe. Some people say Churchill twice saved Britain, first by action in 1940 and second by inaction in 1951 when he kept us out of the European coal and steel community. Uh, I shall talk further about that in the next lecture. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website, www.gresham.ac.uk.